We're test piloting a new segment here on Acquisition Talk where I discuss the week's newsworthy headlines in the world of acquisition with a friend. And so I'm happy to have Matt McGregor here with me to do the roundup. Let's just get right into it. The first article here we have is SpaceX reducing booster production in recent years. Actually, this is from a Reddit SpaceX lounge and not really an article. So they're basically just showing uh, a chart where in 2012, SpaceX produced two boosters and then that pretty consistently grown to about 18 in 2017. And then it started declining after 2017, 15, seven, and then five in the year 2020. That's a pretty big decline. And some might find that worrisome, but really what's going on here is that the boosters launch are still growing, right? They're at the highest that they've ever been, 26 launches in 2020. So the quote here is from a Redditor, quote, this clearly demonstrates why spending about a billion dollars on reusability was worth it. Without that billion, they would have had to increase their production and facilities and workforce accordingly. They would have had to spend more than that by now. So what do you think about that? It doesn't seem like the Air Force or the Space Force would ever have initiated that program or brought it to fruition themselves. So SpaceX is doing the nation a service here. Oh, yeah. I think they're, we talk about non-traditionals and why we need injection of fresh ideas and new commercial ways of thinking. I think SpaceX is almost like the poster child for it because if we had always been relying on ULA, we would have probably paid roughly the same launch costs, maybe a little bit on the margins up or down or something, but we never would have gotten those like massive gains. I think the other thing it did too, is it showed that there's a, there's appetite for, for DOD to have other entrants. So I'm pretty excited. There's always going to be those geosynchronous satellites that are going to need the big Falcons, or I guess Jeff Bezos is Blue Origins working on something there too, and Northrop Grumman. But you're always going to need some of those big rockets to get the big satellites out to those high orbits. But I'm pretty excited about some of the stuff that's going on in the LEO space too, where it shows that, hey, if you can get launch costs down using unmanned aircraft or something like that to launch them, to Leo. I think there's a lot of opportunities for some of this stuff at, at Leo. So I'm, I'm excited to see where that goes. I think it's still early stage a little bit, but yeah. yeah I've, I was actually talking to a guy about a year ago. He founded a company. It was like, they have a giant slingshot. Yeah. <laughs> like literally. And that's why they're going to get to space. And I was like, that's interesting. I just do not know anything about the physics of that, but there's all sorts of approaches going on. And I was pretty stoked actually recently with the I think it was Relativity Labs who had the uh, 3D printed rocket engine. And it's just like, you just like you couldn't have expected a SpaceX back in 2000. Like you just wouldn't have expected that a few years ago. And it seems to be successful. Yeah, there's uh, one, one of the companies I just was doing some quick researching. They're uh, Orbex. They're developing a launch vehicle that's going to be 30% lighter, 20% more efficient than any vehicle in the launch category. It's actually going to be eco-friendly. So yeah, I think in a few years, SpaceX might even be, they might have some tough competition. Yeah, that would be very interesting because it's Elon Musk's whole thing. Like you got to, I don't patent things and all that. I just believe that innovating at the edge and keeping your innovation game going in order to keep your competitive advantage. So hopefully that works out for him. Let's move on to the next one here. And this is a little bit of a pivot and they all will be. China shipbuilding volume up 54.7% for January and February from the Sea Trade Maritime. I think this one's a little bit of a back to China scare tactics or <laughs> arousing some, some fear from this. But the quote here is China shipbuilding output for January to February 2021 was 7.23 million deadweight tons, an increase of 54.7% year on year, while volume 
of newly received order of newly received orders was 6.81 million deadweight tons, an increase of 105%. So that was before the COVID. So it seems to stack up still. Looks like China shipbuilding. I saw an interesting chart that Jordan Schneider shared, which was showing like basically USA, they only had they had 80% of the world's shipbuilding output in uh, World War II. But then it was basically, other than that, it was basically nil. And like yeah. Japan and Korea became the big players. And just recently in the last 20 years, now China is taking about a third of the share. And Koreans, Japan are still big dogs, but uh, China's really creeping up there. Yeah, it blows me away for as much as the U.S. is like the world's buyer of things. And so there's so many, so many ships coming to Long Beach and all of our different ports. And yet, yeah, what's the, I think one of the stats I saw from recent like testimony, personal testimony was 90% of global shipbuilding is, yeah, like you said, China, Korea, and Japan. So yeah, why we are not able to take advantage of that and to get in that market, given we have access to both oceans and yeah, it's crazy. So it shows, it shows that when, when, when there's not government focus, I feel like sometimes shipbuilding is, I feel like one of those things like nuclear power plants, but investing that upfront piece needs a little bit of government involvement. And so when you don't have government focus on actually going after and targeting and saying, we're going to become leaders in cargo shipbuilding, you can easily lose the game. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I worry though about like, when I look over at Korea, they can do like a transit project, like a metro line for a 10th of the cost. Oh, and so it's like, what, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on between these two systems? Because it can't just be like, things just cost that much more here. There's got to be some regulatory barriers that are just fundamentally different. And I just don't have a good bearing on what that is. Yeah. I wonder too, with Dan, Dan Pat and Bill Greenwald's paper, where they were comparing the length of time it takes to you know build a fighter jet or whatever. And I read that it takes about three years for an American shipbuilding company to build a cargo ship. And, and I was wondering, I didn't see the stat, but I was wondering, yeah, what, do, what does it take in Korea or China? I bet it doesn't take three years, probably significantly faster. So there's something there. Yeah. Regulatory or union, union issues, or yeah, we just don't have the efficiencies or whatnot. Yeah. So moving on to hypersonic weapons, here's a headline from the GAO. DOD should clarify roles and responsibilities to ensure coordination across development efforts. So GAO identified 70 efforts to develop hypersonic weapons that were estimated about 15 billion between fiscal years 15 and 2024. So that's a 10-year time frame there for 15 billion. But to give you some perspective on it, 14.5 billion of that was from the DOD. So pretty much all of it. NASA and DOE were smaller guys. And the Navy was actually the biggest uh, spender in DOD with 6.2 billion. And then Air Force was at 3.6 billion. Army and DARPA were over 1 billion. And so was R&E. So it's, it's interesting that the Navy was in the lead. Yeah, I, I went to the back of that report because I was interested too. I was like, the 70 didn't sound right to me. And I think, I think they were saying like different, I read that as there was different like pieces of a project that were spanned across different agencies because they they had a whole list of agencies that were involved. But when I went to, when I went back to the actual like hypersonic weapon prototypes that are underway, there's only one, two, three, four, five. One of them was the standard missile six. One of them was the long range hypersonic weapon that the army has. One of them was hacksaw, which actually I think the air force already canceled that. And then conventional prompt strike, which was another Navy one. And then arrow, which was another air force one. So 
I don't know. I feel like there's not that many programs going on that need to be coordinated, but there probably are like a lot of individual efforts, especially when you throw testing in there and you throw production and some of the wind tunnels um, were in there too, right? Yeah. Yeah. That is that I agree. I really do agree with GAO on that because I had a friend who did a paper on it and we have no wind tunnels hardly for hypersonics, like really limited. And that's one thing China has a huge edge on us for hypersonics is they spent the last 10 years building out their wind tunnels and hypersonic infrastructure. And we basically forgot about hypersonics for a really long time until a couple of years ago. So I think we're playing catch up and wind tunnels will probably be one of the major limiting factors. So it might be really good to have some coordination given that we might have to compete for some of that wind tunnel and other testing infrastructure. Yeah, it seems like, again, when you go back to the digital architecture, you want to have enterprise tools that can be shared across the services and get those savings gains. But I don't necessarily agree that every product or application needs to be like streamlined. So there's just one to take them all. So where does it make sense to have that consolidation? Where does it not? And I don't think the GAO has a really good sense of a lot of that stuff because it just seems like for them, their go-to conclusion every single time is we need more data when we need like stronger central control over these things to make sure that they get managed to success and have the funding that they need and, you know, (laughs) stamp out any kinds of duplication or overlap, even if that is more innovative than definitely Eisenhower understood that in the fifties is can leadership understand that today. GAO headlines always make me laugh because they always seem to have a negative bent a little bit like DOD, you know, needs to get their act together here. And then you read the report. And even in this report, I thought, I thought it was interesting is that there was, there actually has been pretty good, I think, central oversight with R&E and the directors and stuff. And then they even acknowledge in the report that there's great coordination amongst all the different bodies and stuff like that, but it just wasn't like formalized. And DOD concurred with their recommendations and said, we're already working on that. But it's funny that the headline is always hypersonics disconnected and stuff like that. I always laugh at And then, yeah, that always seems to be the responses too. It's always like the same kind of recommendations. And then the DOD always says, agree, and we will work on that. And then the GAO issues another report. They said they were working on that, but still not complete. They (laughs) only made 90% progress. They didn't get 100%. Yeah. So let's move on to the next one. Collaborative Air Combat Autonomy Program makes strides. And this was straight out of DARPA. APL, which is Applied Physics Lab, has continued to design and extend the simulation environment for this phase of the ACE program, ACE's uh, air combat evolution. Teams demonstrated 2v1 simulation or simulated engagements with two friendly blue F-16s fighting against a team of enemy red aircraft. This just is a kind of the next stage. They have some new weapons and some new like kind of sensors and two versus one instead of one versus one. Any kind of the thoughts on, on, on this next stage here? Fundamentally, I just don't know why we're still like, I when, okay, I get the idea that we need to build trust with AI. I've worked a little bit with the army's autonomy division where they're trying to get like the ro- robot combat vehicles and things like that to help soldiers to go be part of the front line, to help them with carrying heavy gear and all that stuff. My trust is a huge part of that. So you have to be able to trust that if the thing is carrying your gear behind you, it's not going to run you over or blow up next to you or something. So you have to build, you have to build the trust that thing has enough, enough intelligence to do the right thing. But I don't understand the focus on the dog fighting. I just, I keep going back to that. There was a lot of kvetching about F-35, if it competed with a, an SU-23, Russia would 
be able to get better turns on it and and shoot it out of the sky. And it's like, if the F-35 ever, ha- ever has to dogfight, then, you know, that mission has already gone awry. Like it should never be that close. It should never be dogfighting. It was not designed for that. So I just don't know. I would love to see. But then why design the F-35 in the way that they designed it at all if it was never supposed to get in a dogfight? Why not just build, like, why not have a bunch of B-21 missile chuckers? Yeah, it, it, it was not designed to dogfight. It was designed to do very minimal angle of attack. It does have some capabilities there. But it, yeah, it's definitely not meant to do F-22 high-term maneuvers and, and things like that. It, can, it couldn't compete uh, in like that regime. But it, it does have some capabilities, like you said. Why isn't it just a big box just doing it, just carrying weapons? Well, mainly probably because it's stealthy. It's supposed to be stealthy and it's supposed to have, have some level of internal weapons and stuff like that. So it's, it's meant to be a fighter jet, but I've always thought about it as a command and control platform that just so happens to have a couple weapons. It doesn't have a ton of weapons. Internal bays are pretty limited. So once you start strapping things on the sides of it to the pylons, you might as well just be flying an F-15 because your your radar cross-section is gone. So yeah, I just don't know, like for this one, I'm sure DARPA did amazing things and it's super fun to watch, but I just don't know why like the focus on dogfighting because I just don't see like that being the future fight in the South China Sea. I feel like they're going to be shooting at us from much greater range. We're, we'll, you know, if we're doing air-to-air combat, we're probably not completing the mission the way we we planned it. So I would rather see them do more of like ABMS kind of things. Can you communicate? Can you get navigation signals in a jammed environment? And if you don't have radios, like how do you complete the mission or how do you launch if you can't get, I, there's, I feel like there's other problem sets that are probably going to be more challenging in that fight. Then. I feel like DARPA has plenty of programs to that extent in this one True. going for a different thing. And eventually, like if you think about what's the future of Skyborg and then disaggregated platforms and tradable pr- platforms like you're not going to throw an expensive thousand mile missile at that thing you're going to get into some of these types of scenarios and i just feel like first it might just be the simplest thing because it's just what's simpler so. than just two things in like the air that are just like circling each other is well defined as, as a thing and so i don't really have a problem with it but they they do need to be moving faster i think and showing the relevance of it rather than just they got a bunch of press on it earlier. And I think that probably makes that this is probably like a building block. So I'm not, I don't want to give them too much harper. I it's probably a building block to to many of the other, these other things. When we get to F35, we can talk about how most of the operations when you start to bring in like EW and other stuff, you need to be in a simulated environment. So this is probably a really great, you know, stepping stone to to expanding the the AI operations. On that note, let's skip down over to the F-35 because it's for the past few weeks, it's just been in the news constantly. And it, it always is, <laughs> but yeah. I guess a little bit more so now because of some of the language coming out from Congress and other places. So there's one headline from Defense News. Five program moves too slowly in deploying software, says government watchdog. So that's another GAO report, which is actually hilarious to me that the, G- that the GAO is basically saying that the F isn't doing agile DevOps correctly. But let's just get the quote here from them. Quote, Lockheed also had trouble identifying software deficiencies before a new code was released to operational F-35s with one, an- with one analysis by third party finding that 23% of all defects were discovered after delivery from December, 2017 to September, 2020. Quote, software changes intended to introduce new capabilities or fix deficiencies often introduce stability problems and adversely affected other functionality, end quote. 
So what's that kind of show saying to you there? Yeah. Were we ever expecting the other types to be doing agile develop software development perfectly, given how complex and all the legacy code on that aircraft and all the issues that they have to overcome? There's, uh, there's probably no more complicated platform in the DoD right now. So yeah, so not a surprise. I don't think anybody would have thought that they were doing everything perfectly. They are trying. They are doing, they're stepping out. They're uh, trying to tackle this big problem using commercial methodologies. So I think they deserve some credit. Clearly, one of the things that did, did concern me was that they, they're having that many defects. If you look at Google Dora metrics that are used from a lot of the top companies, change failure rate is a big one. So if, you are, if you're not able to field or if you're feeling something that's degraded performance, that's not a good measure. And so I pulled up one of their things. And if you have more than, yeah, 40, 46 to 60% of a change failure rate means you have low like performance. You're, you're at the low performance level. Uh, medium performance level is zero to 15. So really that's your, if you're outside the 15% range, you're starting to get, you're not doing it. So I think that is like a good thing to note. They probably do need to improve like the automated testing tools and some of their testing environments so that they can get some of those defects identified and fixed before they field them. But you have to give them some credit that they're trying to get on a rhythm and they probably have a ton of processes to mature and get better. At least they're, at least they're taking that step and they're not still doing waterfall. I was, the GAO had that report a little while ago about, they looked at a bunch of DOD programs and to see about their like cycle times in terms of releasing code. And it was just like, GAO, like you guys are trying to tell them that they need to follow processes that are waterfall. But then you say they're experimenting with this agile thing. They need to do agile better. I think there needs to be a like an internal look at your processes and what how you measure programs. Because some of those same programs they'd be looking at from a different lens and they'd be saying, oh, where's your life cycle cost estimate? How are you performing to that estimate? And where are your detailed list of specifications and all this stuff? And then on the other hand, they're like, you should have been doing agile better. You said you're going to deploy every two months and it's actually taking you three. There, there was one quote in there that really stuck out to me. They were like, without a software development schedule that reflects how much work can be accomplished in each increment based on historical performance, the program office will continue to experience delays. Yeah, I was like, okay, like on one hand, they're saying you need to be better at agile. But on the other hand, they're saying you need to go back to estimating and predicting every single drop you're going to do and everything that's in that drop. And so it's like, which way are you, which way are you pushing the program? Are you wanting to go back to predicting everything or do you want them to do agile? Right. Yeah. That whole like backwards looking productivity metric. And then it's just, you need to hit those metrics, even if you're not deploying. My problem is it gets away from the capabilities being released. It's what are these defects and what are the capabilities that are being released within each increment? And I want to know like how that works out. And I guess a lot of it might be classified and, but it can't be classified from GAO either. So I feel like the lack of information that comes out from programs is often an indication that they're scared or that they're not performing because when programs do well, they love showing things off. Yeah. And if it's not classified and they can show it off, why aren't they showing it off? I don't know. I will say too, like one of the things that we talk about, like when we like software pathway, software acquisition pathway is like burning down technical debt. I can only imagine the technical debt that F-35 has and how they're trying to get that into shape. And so one of the challenges, like commercial companies have this too, where in order to burn down technical debt, sometimes you have to sacrifice capability. And so you actually have to get after some of those things that are not sexy 
that aren't going to give you those capabilities you might want, but that will will set the stage for you to do good things going forward. So some of those defects, I yeah, without knowing more details, but there could be a lot of technical debt in there where they're fixing things that they know are going to cause problems down the line. So a year from now, I think we have to look what well, we can look back and say, was that the case? Or are they just doing bad software development and they're having a lot of defects and they're not catching them in time? So I think the jury will probably still be out. Jury's been out for 20 years. So a couple of years. <laughs> C2D2 has been going on for at least three, four years now. I, I feel like Congress never fully really funded that. Like they kept holding back on that because we weren't the program. Was- That's the big problem there that they couldn't even make that flexibility in the trade off without trying to get supplemental funding. And just development and modernization costs grew $1.9 billion over the last year. That's a lot of money. That's a lot more money than than's going to a lot of other programs that could have been starting. Emerging tech would love to see a better part of 1.9 billion. Oh, I know. So let's keep moving on with F35. I don't want to linger on this one. The F35 <laughs> may be sal- unsalvageable from the hill. And so basically it looks like their point here is that there's a poor track record, but I'm just going to give this one quote here. Uh, quote, The only states that do not have at least one supplier for the aircraft are Hawaii and North Dakota. (laughs) This gives all but two representatives and four senators more than enough incentive to not keep greasing the wheels, but also to add 32 earmarks for the JSF program, costing $10.6 billion since FY21. And a number of earmarks became illegal, and now it seems like they're going to be coming back into legality land. They are back. I think they passed. I think the committees passed um, a rule. So I think they're, I think they're technically back now. Yeah. But it seems like most people just believe like we're too far into it. Production rates are already there. Like we, we have uh, a bunch of allies on board with the program. So like the congressional political interest aspects, the international relations aspects, the fact that we've already have a bunch of sunk costs, like the program's just going to go, hopefully we just don't do it again. <laughs> that seems to be the analysis people end up at. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. They're They've definitely gotten it when, when you've gotten like your congressmen who have some vested interest in keeping that program alive. When you've gotten them like Adam Smith to say like this program, this program is, is dog, not working. <laughs> yeah. What do you say? A dog. Yeah. When, when they get to that level, like you're really uh, missing the mark. But I think part of the problem, right? It was always that we pushed out so fast with production. And I'm actually a little bit of a, I'm a fan of concurrency because I think you have to have that to keep programs from being too extended out too far. Not everything can be sequential, but I think we really way overdid it with F-35. And even when the Air Force and some of the other services wanted to pull back on production, Congress kept plussing them up. And so we kind of got pushed into that 48, you know, 48 a year kind of thing. And I think that really did hurt the program because the amount of effort to go back and upgrade and to do all the things that are found after the fact is a real burden. It's a burden on the depots, burden on the operational units that have to give those jets. I think that was one of the, if I look back, I think that's one of the fundamental flaws. I think we should have slowed down production. Yeah, the cost may not have gotten down as quick, but I think we just stepped out too fast, but we're here now. So we've committed to this program. I think somebody just needs to make a courageous decision and say, we don't need 1800 aircraft because we're probably going to go to NGAD. We're probably going to go to some unmanned stuff, Skyborg. And so what's the new number, right? I mean, say it's a thousand. I don't think that will impact dramatically all the foreign partners and the, the FMS and the partners. I think they will still buy because we're still going to have a ton of these jets for a long time. And they're still going to be an integral player in many theaters of operation. So 
I feel like this idea that we can't back off of that 1800 number is this kind of a craziness thing. And I wish somebody would step forward and just be like, and I hope General Brown or somebody steps forward and says, we're not going to buy 1800. We're going to buy this amount. And then we can start to plan and everybody can do, can figure out what the next steps are. But yeah. Yeah. It is one of those things. People fear it just because once you pull back a little bit, then your unit costs go up because of production rates. And then everyone's, oh, that's just going to be a spiraling problem. And I don't think it's good. that's the case. I think that's just going to have to be reality of where people are today. So let's move on away from the F5 and let's move over to the <laughs> JAIT, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. They have their new AI development platform up and running, says Breaking Defense. The Joint Common Foundations, or the JCF, is a set of cloud-based tools that enable JAIT customers to develop AI, share data to train machine learning algorithms to train machine learning algorithms and work in common environment guided by secure development operations or DevSecOps. So it's great that <laughs> they're getting up. I guess there's a couple observations. One is that the Joint Common Foundations is built on Deloitte, which has actually recently had a $106 million co contract to stand up those AI toolkits. And hopefully that works out a little bit better than their $44 million problem with the COVID-19 vaccination tool for the CDC. <laughs> so it's interesting that the Jake is trying to be all forward leaning and then like picks up Deloitte for this joint common foundations. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure Deloitte has a lot of successes. I don't know all their past performance, but I love the idea of vision. It's similar. It's not that dissimilar to me to what like Kessel Run did, which is the, the big DevOps success story where they hired Pivotal to help them figure out how do we set up the infrastructure? Like, how do we do this? How do we team? How do we create this environment, that ecosystem that, that can be used to, to do good things? So I love that they're stepping out and, and creating this foundation. Wait, I think so do you think that yeah. they're like Kessel? Because in my mind, Kessel Run is straight up leading that. And Pivotal was basically their support for government organic yeah. development. Is yeah. the Jake actually doing the same thing? Or I, I thought they were just contracting a lot more of that effort out rather than the Jake ass software factory or AI factory. I, I Yeah, I think now the Kessel Run is definitely doing their own thing. But I think at the beginning, you didn't have a lot of Air Force people who knew how to do all that stuff. So I think there was a little bit of a reliance on that commercial talent to get us up to speed and help us mature our processes and things like that. Silicon Valley, I think, helped us with that. So I think we're I think we're a little bit in a similar boat here. Maybe it's not the Silicon Valley company that maybe we should have hired. I don't know. I don't know the details there, but the fact that it's well, going to be a Silicon government... Valley company, so, but that doesn't mean you need a Silicon Valley company to do it. I think like Platform One is running, or Cloud One is actually from SAIC, and then but then they're using either Azure or AWS. So, right. Yeah. yeah, I'm not saying you need that. Maybe. Maybe we should have looked harder in the commercial sector. I don't know. But the fact that they are creating an ecosystem that can be used, I've always said, like for especially for AI, that it needs to be easy for programs to be able to tap into and take advantage of. That if everybody has to invent their own thing and try to figure out like the complexity of integrating this new thing into this and trying to get the contractor to figure it out, if, if they have to figure it out on their own, it's going to be a lot harder to scale. So I love that they're doing this where they're going to, you know, try to bring in the data make the data available so you can train these things a lot easier, uh, Make share maybe share common modules. If you're doing like robotic process automation with these functions, maybe you can apply that similar module with some tweaks to this. I, I, I just love, I love the concept. I hope, I hope it rolls out well. And I hope the program offices, one of the challenges to me is going to be, I think, 
how the program offices tap into it and how they use it right. with existing contracts. So I think that's where the thing to watch will be. Yeah, it seems like the Jake is going to have a big consulting role almost to help usher program offices into that environment. And yeah. it's not really clear to me, actually, they're probably going to run into some of the same issues that some of the other software factories have had in terms of onboarding and getting like contractors and in, in the program offices. But I, I just want to see a map of the ecosystem somewhere that's just, these are the enterprise tools. These are the ones that are like substitutes for each other. These are just like cloud infrastructure. And these are the ones that are like interoperable or build on top of each other. And like, where does the J the joint common foundation sit? Or is it like a silo or how does it interact with these other tools? I just, I don't have a clear idea of that. Yeah. I, I had talked to somebody over there about that. And I think their vision is to integrate with a lot of the DevSecOps environments. One of the things that strikes me is that software programs that are using agile methodologies are probably going to be those like best posture to take advantage of some of the AI because they'll be able to just make it a feature, right? They're not going to have to go back and read your requirements or update their baselines or whatever. They're just going to be able to add it to their backlog, prioritize it within some future release, and then be able to integrate it. So I think they've already, I think, recognized that. So I think they're going to be integrating into the different DevSecOps environments like Platform One or Black Pearl with the Navy and some of the Army things that are going on, Army Create, I think it's called. So yeah, I think they're already looking to that. Yeah, but big fan of all of those kind of infrastructure and enterprise tools. Yeah. So hopefully that works out well and excited to see what's coming out of the Jake. The next one here is yep. goodbye tanks, how the Marine Corps will change and what it <laughs> will lose by ditching armor by the Marine Times. So here's a nice quote from it. Quote, at the time of the initial overhaul announcement, the Corps had 452 tanks at its disposal. By December 2020, 323 had been transferred to the Army. The remaining tanks were scheduled for transfer by 2023, which included tanks in overseas storage and abroad maritime prepositioning ships. So basically, the, the idea here is Marine Corps is shedding its tanks, getting rid of it to the Army, and the Army is going to be its, quote, 911 <laughs> if it needs armor in some kind of future conflict. But they're really, and this has been going on for some years now, but they're really like, going for a much lighter force. So any- <laughs> I love the Marine Corps. I just want to say that. <laughs> I love how they reinvent themselves. Like they are masters at this. If you ever read the book about the Osprey, where the V-22, yep. where they, they basically came up with whole new operational uh, disciplines called, you know, vertical envelopment, where, you know, they integrated the Osprey. They took a technology, created whole operational concepts around it for, for operating in a different way. So I love how they reinvent themselves because they're small enough, they're agile enough. They can, they can say, okay, you know what, we're, we've realized that this isn't working. We're going to try something new. And so I love the fact they're getting rid of tanks. I think it always bothered me that the Marine Corps had tanks because I always viewed them as our like flexible, our large special ops force. So I love that they're going back to their roots and uh, yeah, they're going to, they're going to be able to probably fill some mission sets that when they were burdened down with tanks and had to fund all of the, they don't have a huge budget either. So the amount of money that they were probably putting to keeping these tanks, maintaining them and modernizing them, probably missed out on a lot of opportunity costs to do other things that were more aligned with their specialization. So I look forward to seeing what they do and how they, yeah, how they do this new mission set of littoral combat or whatever it is that they're, the new thing they're doing. Yeah. I also, it's interesting you say that because I also see them, at least with the jump jet idea, just been like fixated on Guadalcanal for too long. <laughs> and that's led to a few bad procurement decisions on their front. but. 
Yeah, I do, I do the decision too. I think there needs to be more diversity in the force. So it's just, if they can, if they're leaning in on a new concept of operations where you're lighter, leaner, and but you can still have the lethality yes. to take out other people's tanks. I think that's worth trying, but, and so long as the army's game, I think they're sticking with the tanks for at least a little while. They've invested in the Abrams and they're looking at the yeah. new like unmanned tanks from like Textron. So they've had some new developments there. So, you know, Russia's bringing the tank back. They've done, uh, they've done a lot of research. Like I, I was just watching some documentary about tanks and they were like, there was a period of time where people thought that tanks, the, the age of tanks had, had ended, but then Russia recently, fairly recently designed like a brand new one. That's really fast and really effective. So now it's like the army's, I think the army's going to have to be back in that game or at least come up with some good way to counter that. And yeah. So maybe this is. Don't you think the Abrams has quite a bit of capability in of itself right now. Sure. And, it, yeah, and the it Russians is. probably didn't go to some new paradigm of a platform that puts it like way above the fold. So I, I still think that the diversity of space out there and new ways of ground combat, probably, I think the tank as an idea, right? I just need a piece of armor with a big gun on it. That's going to probably survive in some way, in some shape and form. <laughs> but right. how that's yeah. networked is probably going to, and how that interoperates with the rest of the force is probably going to be we're going to be looking at but anyway marine corps ditching the armor we'll see how they can storm the beaches otherwise let's move on to well, they do have one last point they do have f-35s right when you go back and look at the f-35 program a big part of the beginning of the program is actually dedicated to the marine corps platform the stovel that is probably the most cutting edge piece of technology from f is that that the ability of that plane to land vertical takeoff and landing so anyway they do have those yeah it'd be interesting to see how they incorporate the lives into this new concept Let's move on to the CA. Israelis worry about the CH-53K King Stallion engines from breaking defense. Quote, the U.S. Director of Operational Test and Evaluation's annual report says that the CA engine's performance degrades below acceptable minimum after 21 minutes of dust exposure. That could be pretty poor for Israelis. <laughs> this is yeah. causing great concern in the IAF as buying the first batch of 20 helicopters. So... I was actually a few weeks ago when they reported on Israel buying the CA. I was actually pretty surprised. I was like, yeah. you know, for military sales, people usually won't buy something unless it works. But Israel went for it and it looks like they might be. It's not really clear, especially with Israel, what are the political considerations in a buy and what are like right. the actual military considerations in a buy. But the CH-53Ks had a lot of problems for a while in terms of composites going up, weight going up, costs going up. And it's, it would be good to see that thing back in action. But I think this is going to be a big test of whether the CA is like future almost in some respects. Yeah, I, I will say that I never will question the Israelis' ability to, yeah. to fix a problem that we're not great at fixing. They always tend to, I don't know, in so, so many examples, they'll take one of our platforms that has all kinds of problems, and then they'll do 25 different engineering changes to it. And it'll turn out to be this like really awesome platform that works for them. So I don't question the F-35, they have their own variant, which they don't really talk about, but they basically have their own development program. And they're probably going to take this, make adjustments to it, make it great. And then it'll work for them. So I don't have any, I don't have any worry about them being able to tackle some of these challenges here, but it is, yeah, it is a shame that it is a shame that something that was clearly would have to land in dusty environments can't, can't do that. That is... <laughs> Right. And, that, and that, I guess that's the big headline there. 
Let's move on to AFRL completes second Golden Horde demonstration shifts focus to Coliseum digital weapons ecosystem from Jane's. So the Golden Horde is an Air Force Vanguard program that integrates data link radios and collaborative behaviors to allow guided weapon systems to work together dynamically in real time to prioritize and defeat targets. This shared data is used to improve information across an entire group or swarm of weapons to defeat adversary defenses and improve overall effectiveness. So Golden Horde, of course, it's the it's one of those vanguards. The other vanguards are there's a yeah, Skyborg's the 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 big one that has a bunch of autonomous combat vehicles. But what was the third one? It's like N- networking N three something. I'm talking about. You know what the third? I think no, it might I... have to do with like satellite pro like integration with satellites or something. But there's three of yeah. them. And Golden Horde is apparently the one for for swarming weapons. Yeah, I to, for me, I was looking up that your question there. Oh yeah, the other one is the navigation technology satellite. There you go. I think that's like a GPS replacement. Yeah, swarming to me is. I'm really glad that that we're doing this. We're trying this out, playing around with it, because I think that is when we when you think about the South China Sea scenario, you're gonna have you're gonna have a lot of weapons coming at you. You're gonna have a lot of targets to take out in order to protect the forces that are there. So you're going to need to swarm. You're going to have to use miniature air launch decoys. You're going to have to use attributable UAVs. You're going to, you're going to have to do a lot of creative things, I think, to deny China from, say, taking Taiwan or attacking Japan or whatever that scenario looks like. And so swarm, I think, is our most cost-effective bet for doing that. So I'm glad to see that they're doing this. SDB-1s are pretty cheap weapons. We have a lot of them in the inventory, although a lot of them were used up, but that is a, a perfect, I think a perfect combination to go, to go experiment with and see what we can do. And yeah, it's good stuff. Swarm all day. There is a Michael Crichton book based on swarms. I forget exactly what it was called, but I just remember when I was a kid, I read it and it was just like all about like a swarming technology that was like, <laughs> that got loose of a lab and then, <laughs> and then started killing the people that were making it. Oh, really? I'm, you know, I'm not a Navy expert or anything, but isn't that sort of what like carrier groups are most concerned about? Like in the, in the Iranian and the Persian Gulf and stuff is like swarms of these like torpedo boats or something coming out. I feel like, yeah. Yeah. They had those tests where they had some like fast attack boats come at a DDG and they tried to just take them out with the Vulcans and it just was not working very well. Yeah. <laughs> like those things like you can get at them, but if you have enough of those swarming boats, you're eventually going to reach. And I think the the cost, if you're willing to lose a couple and, and you like the, the cost ratio there is, is not a fair exchange. Yeah. I'd love to see DOD move more towards like this, a philosophical mindset of like, let's, let's have greater numbers of less exotic platforms. Like I feel like we have created a culture in DOD where we're like, if it's not like the the most technology technological advanced cutting edge thing, then it's not good enough. And I'd love to see us like move off that and be like, yeah, let's just take a ton of these UAVs that have very little capability, but that can accomplish the mission for a third of the cost or something. Hopefully we can move there someday. Yeah, I guess like autonomy is the key there because like yeah. the US will just always value human life. And it's it wasn't always like that. Like you had folks doing crazy test pilot stuff back in the day, testing the envelope, and now it's you got to fly within the pre-specified bounds and survivability is our number one thing. And we got to design everything as if there was a six, eight dude that was 300 pounds. Yeah, no, the helmets don't fit. Yeah. 
So yeah, let's, uh, the next one here is U.S. Navy wants drone control features on AWACS awards contract to Northrop Grumman for upgrades. And that was from the Eurasian Times. Quote, the experiment for flying E2D along with UAVs was announced on March 17. Earlier, the U.S. Navy said it wanted to move some command and control activities for future carrier-based drones off ship through unmanned and manned teaming technologies. So I think this actually gets a little bit back to what you're saying. Let's disaggregate some of these, streamline it. But it, also, it feels an awful lot like something ABMS wants to do but isn't quite, maybe is not quite funded. It seems like these are like in the exact same wheelhouse and like what the Navy's doing with their project overmatch and the army's doing and the air force is doing, they're all really going along the same kind of trajectory. No. Yeah. I think you're right. I think the bringing in some, bringing in the unmanned piece, I think has a lot of potential. Like you said, it, it takes a lot of that other putting human life at risk. So yeah, having, having a control center on one of these stingrays, which, you know, seem like really capable vehicles. I don't know all the things that are on that. I need to probably research more on exactly all the capabilities of that thing, but yeah, it just seems like a logical, it doesn't seem like a logical extension of where we need to go and just move more stuff to, to, to some of these unmanned platforms and allow, allow it to, instead of having all this space for human safety stuff, you can, you can jam all these calm and other capabilities in there so that it can do its do its primary mission more effectively. So, yeah, I just looked up the the Stingray. I was because I was actually thinking, how simple is that thing? Because it's like the MQ twenty five, the Stingray is about a hundred million dollar, one hundred eighty million unit. Cost. Is it really? I, I oh, just wow. can't believe that, and that's like more than a Global Hawk or a Triton. I want to know exactly what's uh, based on one hundred eighty million based on the seventy two aircraft. An E2, it's a cool concept, but like an E2D is also just, hey, shoot me down. <laughs> and then you're pairing it with an MQ-25, which is not exactly a tritable. <laughs> no, that's not a tritable cost. That's, yeah. Maybe once they get the numbers, maybe that's just like some of those early numbers. Um, it hopefully. might be though, that it's one of those, I got this program. Let me just try to jam all my things into it because I, <laughs> I wasn't expecting to get three programs for the three major areas or something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at it too. It does look like, looks like they maybe went exotic with it. So it goes back to that thing where, you know, if you're going to do, if you're going to do something different, let's, let's keep it. I, I was just thinking about this the other day is like, you can have, we build all of our airplanes, right? F-18s, F-35s, whatever. We build them oftentimes to be able to do like almost every single mission. Like it has to dogfight. It has to be able to do ground engagements. It has to be able to detect air to air by a thousand miles has to do every single mission really well. It's like when we build these UAVs, let's build them so that they have a specialized mission and they're not like, like you said, not cramming everything into it where it has to do every single mission. So maybe that's just one of those um, inertia things that we need to try to keep ourselves from the trap from falling into every single time is everything goes back to requirements, right? Like how do you define the requirements? And I feel like there's still a mindset of, when I do a requirements document, this might be my only chance. So I need to make sure that I get every single thing out of this program that I can possibly get because I'm not going to get another one for 20 years. So hopefully we can chart to change that mindset by iterating and having more of these types of platforms and bringing them online in you know, a lot faster pace. Yeah, it's weird because the Stingray is an aerial refueling drone. I remember that. But it was actually grew out of a different type of program. And now it's like they're definitely throwing a bunch of sensors on it because it's a big enough platform. So 
Yeah, it just seems to just pick the one mission and just design the minimum capability to get that in the air and learn because it was also like a stealthy drone. So it's, you're trying to do a lot of things. If you're going to do it for a stealthy drone, get the stealthy drone. And then and now let's start thinking about payloads, right? And maybe you have to think about the payloads up front, but to some degree, whether I swap in this ordinance or that sensor package, I don't, I don't really know, but. Yeah, it goes back to, I, I think the UAV was perfect. Or I'm sorry, UAV, the, um, you know, the predator was like, I need something to, for first it was like an ISR platform, but then they're like, okay, now we're going to put these small missiles on it. If you look at the, the missions it did, they were very specific. It was dropping a couple small bombs on certain targets, or it was an ISR platform that had a camera on it. They were cheap. They could be shot down without a lot of emotional heartburn and stuff like that. So yeah. I think maybe we should always keep the predator as, as a good uh, model for, for our unmanned missions going forward. Maybe. Yeah. Praise to the Israelis again. So next one here. SPA awarded DOD contract to assess U.S. industrial base of 32 million for five years. I just put that in there because it seems like industrial base considerations is now going to be, especially because of COVID, going to be on the rise. Yeah. Yeah. I think everything's going to be industrial base. I really hope that whoever they um, bring in political appointee that OST brings in, I really hope they, yeah, they have their strong- Secretary of Defense. They raised yes, that position. That's right. It got elevated. Yeah. So I really hope whoever they bring in, they really have that close tie with, with the right industrial partners and that it's a balance between like our traditional defense primes and, and, and the new entrants, the new non, the non-traditionals that we're you know, likely going to have to promote and grow and build into, build into future defense contractors. Yeah. I think this is huge. I think you're right. We're, the industrial base is really weak in a lot of areas. And so we're going to have to use things like a defense production act, to, to beef some of those areas up, especially like in, you know, semiconductors, if we want to have some U.S.-based stuff for rare earth materials, if we want to build out that in- industry, which I've seen recently, there's a lot of money going towards that kind of thing. So there's going to have to be some targeted areas where we actually do spend government money to build that up. But then I think a lot of it is also just what we've been talking about, Eric, just showing that that the Department of Defense can scale commercial technology, right? I feel like if we solve that problem, then some of those other industrial base things also get solved because then more commercial entities come out of the woodwork to solve our problems for us. But if we fail at that and we're not able to scale and we're just giving cyber contracts and they don't go anywhere, then I think we have real problems with the industrial base. Yeah, we've definitely been seeing the, the trends in the industrial base that is still going down. The number of contractors doing business is going down. The top 10 contractors is taking more share of the dollars and more dollars overall. And we'll see if, if that trend can be bucked. There's a lot of controversy now over the Lockheed Aerojet potential deal. And it seems like there's been some backlash. Northrop did it with Orbital. We can yep. do it And I don't know, maybe there's a sea change. I'm not really sure. Maybe that also has to do a little bit going on with the Twitters and Facebooks and, and the backlash against the big tech. I don't know. They always say, I always feel like whenever there's a merger um, or acquisition kind of thing, that it's always under the guise of like efficiency and that, we're going to be able to do things you know, better and cheaper. Not that I've done exhaustive studies, but my, my, my sense is that we don't always see that. There's, it often results in higher profit margins or it's better for the company on Wall Street. The returns that DOD gets, like, do we get cheaper platforms? Do we get better platforms from it? I don't know. I feel like there's maybe some more literature to be done on that. I'm skeptical of consolidation. Yeah. There's a good uh, quote from James Forrestal, former the first secretary of defense actually, but who was actually against 
the joining of the Department of Defense at the time. And he says back in 1944, quote, I think any executive of a great corporation resulting from consolidation will tell you how difficult it is to preserve the vitality and initiative of these units of the combined, which as separate entities have those qualities. Once swallowed into the amorphous mass of a vast and new organization, they are apt to be hamstrung by the very inertia of their size. And mm. he's like quoting a rail road tycoon who said i believe it was mr james j hill finally decided that no one man could run more than ten thousand miles of railroad but he makes this point quote the point i am making simply is that size is no guarantee of efficiency and it's just economies of scale is the only thing people understand in the department of defense if i'm bigger my production rates go down and my overhead is smaller and it's just we're not in that we're not in that like big fixed physical industrial world anymore. There's like the problems of communicate like back then you had linear movement of like objects right. down an assembly line. So it's not like any given person had that much interaction with anyone else and you can scale that. But now like it's all about knowledge work and everyone has to know a lot of other people's business and that kind of communication really is hard. And I guess that's why Amazon was so smart going to the API kind of oriented architecture so that you can segment off these teams, but then also like the product management stuff, bringing that all back together. The DOD just <laughs> doesn't, everything is so project-based. It's just oriented so differently. Yeah. I, and I love the point about the cultures because some of the success of some of these companies, and I'm sure people that work for Orbital, Orbital ATK or Aram Rocketdyne or whatever, they, they probably have a company culture that they're really proud of and that they've been able to make successful but yeah, when you get absorbed by some bigger entity, you lose that. I remember when I was like a young PM and I would go to visit some kind of some, some company, they would always hearken back to their legacy. Like even though they may have been part of Lockheed or Northrop, they would always be like, yeah, we're, we're this legacy company. Like our heritage goes back to there. They still had an identity back to there. But by being sucked into a large group, I'm with you. I can't see in my head the business case where like innovation is going to improve by a large, a very large organization becoming larger. It just seems like the dynamics are, are the other way around, but I guess we'll see. Next one here is the battle heats up over Pentagon spending plans from the Hill. Pentagon officials are reportedly crafting a fiscal year 2022 budget between 704 billion and 708 billion. That is essentially flat compared to with this year's funding. One of the problems here is that the progressive side is accusing the Republicans of fear mongering. Representative Pokin says, quote, if we literally cut our defense budget in half, we'd still spend $100 billion more on defense than China. So what do you think about that argument? Yeah, I, I forget who it was. I think it was like a past Secretary of Defense who said something about talking about the Russians back in the day. And they were like, he's like, I'm not saying the Russians are 10 feet tall. I'm saying they used to be 5'9", and now they're 6 feet. Like He said something like that. And I thought that was perfect for China. It's like, yeah, the Chinese military is not, it's not 10 feet tall, but in their civil military fusion, which everybody says really positive things about, they have a long way to go by most reports. Like they're, they're not there. So they are not, they're not like the, they don't have everything figured out and it's not like they're not without challenges, but they are getting bigger. They are investing a lot more. They're getting very innovative. They're, you know, doing things smart. And so they're going after our weak spots, which they've, you know, monitored for years and years. And so they know where we're, where we have our challenges. And yeah, so I think like, you have to be honest about that. And so I think people that say that's warmongering or 
fear-mongering or whatever, I think they need to, there needs to be a recalibration there about, about the threat and about where the areas are that the U.S. will not be able to you know, protect our allies or will be weak at being able to defend against the Japanese or Taiwan invasions. Yeah, I think you can always bring it back to that. But at the same time, I do have sympathy that the fact that the Defense Department always needs to grow is like a truism. Like it always has to increase like 3% every year. There are so many efficiencies. What's that? They're they're saying 5% is the number, right? Yeah, there are so many efficiencies that can be had across the department. Your, I think your point about the legacy platforms that you asked Michelle Flournoy about getting rid of some of these platforms that, that are not going to be useful in that future fight, or maybe you know keeping smaller numbers of those for more permissive environments. But yeah, there's efficiencies to be had. I think just throwing more money at DoD is not always the answer. Sometimes actually, Dan Ward has a great a great thing on this where sometimes when you have less resources, you you get clever and you do more creative things. And sometimes, sometimes we need to be leaned out a little bit. And so, yeah, I think they, they should, people that say we constantly need more and more money should be challenged, but at the same time, we shouldn't underplay the China threat. Yeah, definitely. You'd say, first of all, it's not a truism that we spend like more than double than China, because if you use purchasing power parity, they're north of 500 billion. And then they're also just, they have a different paradigm of how they use resources. So yeah. the actual dollars going to building and developing things is probably greater than the Department of Defense where we just spend a bunch of stuff on other missions that don't really pertain to the military or it's just like straight up overhead and process. And I would guess the, the old views were anywhere from 30 to 50% of all development costs are actually just documentation costs rather than getting anything done. <laughs> well, and that ignores... I've always said this, I feel like military leaders, sometimes when they're on the Hill, I wish they would say this more, but the military, the amount of money spent on actual like research and development and procurement of weapon systems is small compared to the amount of money spent on people and training and all that and readiness and all that stuff that like we are in a way, the military is a social program. When you look at how much training and personnel development is done through, through, through that money. So sometimes I feel like we need to separate out like the money that goes to people and the money that actually is going to weapons platforms, because it's not a, yeah, I think that conversation that needs to be parsed sometimes. What do you mean? Because like, I'm looking right here, 163.5 billion or yeah, 163.5 billion for mill purse, 106 Mm -hmm. billion for RDT&E. Is that not separated? But the civilian personnel. Yeah, that's true. And then the training, when you add in all the training and readiness, I think it's almost like half. Yeah, but when so when you look at O and M plus Milpers, that's four hundred and fifty-two billion versus two hundred and forty-three billion for the investments investment right. accounts. And yeah. yeah, when you look at the space force, that's like way flipped, right? That's ten billion dollars yeah. of RDT and E and two billion dollars of O and M. Of course, they share O and M and and Milpers costs with the Air Force, but still, that's a much mm-hmm. more technology-driven kind of space there. And we have a volunteer force, so we pay them. Yeah, we pay them a lot more. China typically doesn't do, have a volunteer force. Oh yeah, totally. And but that's all across the board. Everyone gets paid less, and the way they devalue their currency really distorts those. So yeah, they're just the real. If you think about it, what are the real resources available to a military planner versus that of an American, and that's where we want to be thinking rather than just like dollar figures when their thing is denominated differently and reported differently. So, yeah. Yeah, they have a weird system, right? Where actually it's like the uh, provinces and then cities actually contribute 
random dollars <laughs> and yeah. the military is just like this weird it's, it's a very different system but to your point about legacy systems depth def kathleen hicks says making room for new capabilities will, will require difficult choices where the nation's security needs are no longer being met the department will work closely with congress to phase out systems and approaches optimized for an earlier era so We'll see what we'll see what's to come on the legacy, but moving along here as we're coming on time, combat drones in China are coming to a conflict near you from intelligent aerospace. Quote, the UAE has used AVIC drones in Libya's civil war. Egypt has attacked rebels in the Sinai with them. Saudi-led troops have deployed them in Yemen. The company's drones are now battle-tested, says Heather Penny. They've been able to feed lessons learned back into their manufacturing. There's some more fear mongering on the Chinese side about their drone capabilities. Of course, they have north of 80, I think, percent of world's right. drone kind of output. So it would be interesting to see, like, they're well on the way, and they seem to have a lot of that swarming in AI technology pretty far advanced. Yeah. And this is why one of the things that we were pushing for that, that we've been talking about is the, the need to t- tap into more of our allies and partners innovation because, yeah, the U.S. is not necessarily the leader in all things unmanned and in drones. And yeah, we really need to, I think we really need to team up on that problem and and work together because those technologies in a lot of cases, the ones that the Chinese are using are commercially available. And so sometimes I feel like we actually constrain ourselves in DOD and we won't use, we're not going to use any Chinese drones. And so we constrain ourselves from being able to take advantage of some of those things. And this is where we need to, uh, I think, team up and build our own. If we don't want to trust the Chinese drones, let's do a, a European, US, ASEAN consortium or something to do our own drone industry and, and, and take advantage of some of that same kind of technology. Yeah, hopefully we learned something from this. The last one here, Navy's unmanned ships and drones to team with Zoomwaltz from the breaking defense. Quote, Established in 2019, Surf Devron, which stands for Surface Development Squadron, one, has been one of the more innovative commands in the Navy, bringing together the service's first unmanned ships and working to integrate them with the first two of three eventual Zumwalt destroyers, a ship which has struggled to find a role or real mission within the fleet. The exercise will include Super Swarm Project, a secretive yeah. ON, great name, Super Swarm, Office of Naval like Research it. Experiment effort to operate swarms of small drones and the MQ-8B Fire Scout UAV launched from the littoral combat ships, as well as the MQ-9 Sea Guardian UAV. So interesting that we, we got two kind of duds of a program, the Zumwalt and the LCS, and I guess they're looking for ways to use them and test out some of these capabilities and keep them relevant in terms of more of this multi-domain operations, project overmatch, JADC2 construct here. (laughs) And again, seems very much similar to a lot of the trends that we've been seeing. But I guess from my perspective, the Zoomwalt, it's too much to just throw away and it has some unique capabilities. I don't know how stealthy it is, but it's supposedly stealthy. So that kind of makes sense to for it to be controlling some of these things potentially as more of a command and control station than a railgun super ship, right? And I might have lost you there, Matt. So we lost our pal Matt McGregor. So that will end this episode of Acquisition Talk. Please join us next time. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. 
Thanks again, and until next time.